This show is supported by listeners like you at patreon.com slash Kevin Rothrock, where you can sign up to receive two special The Russia Guy custom coasters for your drinks and your beverages and whatnot, if you pledge at least 10 bucks a month. Howdy, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Russia Guy. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock. And this is the show where I talk to movers and shakers in Russia-focused journalism, academia, and activism. It's late March 2020, as I record these words. You might hear some background noise as I speak because my son is bouncing around upstairs. I would wait until he's at daycare, but we're still in the middle of the global coronavirus pandemic, and daycare has been shut down for more than two weeks already. So that's fun. On today's show, my guest is Jill Doherty, a Russia expert who worked as a journalist at CNN for 30 years before shifting to work in academia. At CNN, she served as a White House correspondent, a foreign affairs correspondent covering the U.S. State Department, as a U.S. affairs editor, a managing editor of CNN Asia Pacific, and for almost a decade as Moscow bureau chief. Jill was kind enough to come on this podcast to discuss her many years in this field, how she's seen it change and evolve over time, and what she makes of Russia's past, present, and future. To get started, though, I asked Jill about her new podcast for the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. It's called Kenan X, and it's about, I'm reading the description here, her never-ending quest to understand Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding region. This is something fresh. The show premiered in January. You've had some really wonderful guests, and I wanted to know what what's the backstory here? How did it come together? And you know, where do you plan to take this podcast? Oh yeah, I'm really excited about it, Kevin. The Wilson Center, the Kennan Institute, decided that they wanted to do a podcast, and so they, since I'd obviously done TV for a long time, they thought it might be a good idea for me to be the host. So uh, our little team, there are three of us. Uh, got together and we started thinking we can actually do anything that we want with this as long as it's about Russia. And what bothers me a lot is that there, you know, there are all these kind of myths, and I'm sure we can talk about this, but there are all these myths about Russia and preconceived notions, and it's so highly politicized that we decided to do whatever the heck we wanted to do, which was things about Russia that intrigued us things that might be, uh, I don't know, confrontational or whatever, but to take a different approach and to try to really explain with people who are in that situation, know about it, maybe are from Russia. We've had a lot of Russian guests and just kind of give a very human and real understanding of what's going on. So we're doing everything. I mean, you know, we've done the new start agreement. We're going to do something on Russian cooking. Um, you, you know, we've done brain drain. It's just whatever strikes our fancy. In terms of like things that are discussed in the West now when it comes to Russia, what's like one of the most problematic areas that, that comes to mind when you think about this in terms of where where's the most room for kind of controversial common sense? You know, I think it's in trying to um, trying to depict and I'm saying depict and not understand, but actually depict what people think Vladimir Putin is trying to do. Because I've said this for a long time, I really do believe that there's this kind of bumper sticker image of Russia 
And during the Soviet days, it was so much easier because it was kind of, you know, godless communism and uh, taking over the world and a big, uh, you know, the, the Red Army and hammer and sickle. It was very kind of hot imagery and so and, and quite simplistic. They were really bad. And so that image is very easy and it's really a kind of a bumper stick, sticker to understand what the country is about. But Russia today is not the Soviet Union and it is far more complex and less, let's say, clear black and white, not that I ever thought it was, but, but I think there are a lot more grays and a lot more change in that society than we really understand. So to try to simplistically say, you know, Putin is a monster, he wants to take over other countries, is just so incredibly primitive that, that I don't think we can even deal with that. It's hard to get into these discussions, though, because if you start saying Putin is not a monster, you get you fall into the same trap that Bernie Sanders has in debates where it's like, well, what are you praising them now? You know, I mean, it's how do you how do you avoid those pitfalls? You know, I think um, you cool some of the emotion. That's half the problem. I mean, even the word like monster. OK, that's a great like if you're out there trying to convince the crowd to burn down a building, use a word like monster. But if you really want to understand, you know, Vladimir Putin happens to be the president of Russia, the Russian Federation. Now, if we keep it on that very objective level and say, okay, he is a leader of a country, maybe we don't agree with a whole lot of what they do, but how do we understand it? If we're really smart, we'll try to listen to what he's saying evaluate it. And a lot of times I'm convinced that Vladimir Putin says precisely what he thinks. And so if we really listen to that, which does not mean that we condone it, accept it, think it's wonderful, etc., but we just listen to him, then we have a better idea of saying, well, how does that fit with, in my case, American, American values, American strategic and defense uh, interests. What are our, what's our strategy? Do you feel like Russia is at all experiencing any kind of special moment right now? Or, or when we look back to 50 years from now, is it just going to be, this is going to be the middle of things not changing? Cause it's, it's, I'm having a hard time myself sorting this out because, you know, they do have these constitutional amendments passing through this, this convoluted process right now. And they, I mean, Putin is potentially going to be around for a lot longer, but maybe he's only leaving that as a as a you know op, as an option, and he'll in, in fact go in four years. It's very unclear. But you you've been you've been watching and studying Russia for a long time. What's your sense of sort of the moment right now? You know, I do believe that it is a moment. I think it's a moment of change, and you know, I'm teaching a course at Georgetown that I'm calling. Uh, the Putin generation. And I look at, let's say, young people. The subject is people who are born after President Putin was in office. So the last 20 years or 20 and younger. Who are they? What do they want? Where do, where do they think Russia fits in? Where do they fit in? And I do believe that something is changing. And I think what is changing is because I, here we go, but I really do think the internet 
is having an enormous impact on people. It's not that these young people just can communicate by that and, you know, can listen to music and all of that stuff, but they're, they really are exposed to things in the outside world. And if you look statistically at uh, just these recent, you know, Levada Center studies, et cetera, if you go back just like four or five years ago, young Russians were very supportive of President Putin. I think it was in the 60s, 60% or so. And now it has fallen. There was one, one study that showed 32%. That was kind of uh, erased. <laughs> but let's say it's cut in half. That's extraordinary. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that they are looking at the outside world. Now, I, I am not saying that they are magically going to believe in Western-style democracy or anything like that. I think they are going to have their own approach to whatever Russian democracy is. But I do believe that certain things are changing. It's kind of interesting. I've heard this kind of talk before, and I, you know, I, I see the reason in it, absolutely. But I find it kind of amusing that in, in, in Russia and maybe in other authoritarian countries, there are, there are still these sort of democratic hopes in the civic power of the internet, whether it's breaking you know, a, a media monopoly or kind of putting people in, in touch so that there's more kind of like community and agency that way. And then in the United States, the conversation has shifted dramatically against social media. A lot of it has to do with election interference, but also just with like the pernicious influence of you know, fake news and unverified f stories and that kind of thing. And so like, it's, it almost feels like in the United States, we look at the youth and we think they're, these kids are ruined. They're just brought up on Facebook and TikTok and who knows what. And they're just, they're, they're not, they'll have no grasp of, of mature civics. And then you look at Russia and you think, well, thank goodness they're not just watching Pierre Canal. <laughs> I mean, where do we start? Because this is really, I think this is, this is the most fascinating question right now. Um, look what's happening in the regions, places all over Russia, where you have, let's say, a church that's going to be built in a park that people really love. And the church comes in and says, now we're going to put up a church. And then they get angry about that. And they come together on a local basis and they say, no, we do not want that. And they eventually reverse it. You're referring to the in, in Yekaterinburg. Exactly. Or you have dumps in the far north of Russia where they're carting all the, you know, garbage from Moscow and people get angry about that. I do believe, I don't want to exaggerate this, but I do believe that Russians are beginning to take responsibility for local communities more than they ever have before. You have the growth of um, charitable organizations, um, everything from uh, dog rescue to uh, hospice, etc. And this is a thing that was so destroyed by communism. It was not allowed to happen. And the fact that people in Russia are beginning to do that is different. Now, does it mean, you know, giant societal change? Does it mean political parties? I don't think so right now, you know, because there are no um, let's say, opposition parties or movements nationwide that are pushing for anything. But, but I think it's probably more effective that it begins on a small level 
here and there <laughs> and everywhere in Russia. In discussions I've seen about these kind of small but growing protest movements and movements of sort of civic awareness, whether it's, you know, protests against landfills or protests against, you know, unwanted construction projects, whether it's like apartment renovations or, or you know, the, the new cathedral in a, in a town public park or something like that, the sort of explanations often fall into what I consider to be kind of two ideological camps. You kind of have a group of people saying these movements are fueled by a reawakening sense of sort of personal dignity. And my impression there is that that's kind of, that's the, that's one kind of concept of civic society or civil society is that it's, it's people kind of motivated by political rights, not economic rights. It's, it's dignity is kind of this intangible sort of, you know, don't, don't disrespect me. And then on the other hand, there are groups of people that suggest that, you know, the only real fuel for kind of a, a concrete political movement are economic rights. You know, it's, it's people that are fighting poverty and fighting for labor rights and things like that. And I wonder, do you think one of these forces is sort of doing better in, in, uh, in Russia right now, or one is more likely to be the, the fuel that, that kind of eventually reawakens civil society if that does indeed happen? Like, do you have a, an opinion on that? I do, because I, I really feel that if you look at what's happening, it reminds me to a certain extent of like what I, I did cover, but from afar, the Arab Spring, because I was covering the State Department at the time that the Arab Spring was happening. And I did travel to the region a bit during that period. And I remember that that feeling there, and I have talked with young Russians who've said the same thing, which is, I just want to be respected, and I just want them to leave me alone to live my own life. And interestingly, I, I keep going back to these statistics about young people, but young Russians, at least among these, you know, Putin children, <laughs> Um, do not value material things as much as their parents did because they've grown up with the idea that probably, and this is not all young Russians, but the, these, you know, a lot of them who, especially who come from big cities, expect certain material things to be there. And they actually denigrate some of those material things. Like they're not interested in... Uh, you know, a Versace dress. Some are, of course, but, you know, they are not as interested in the material um, accomplishments that their parents were. They're onto a different level. And this is very hard to define. It's kind of squishy, but I think it's there that they they have an identity issue. Identity and respect are more important to them than having a car. And so these are the people <laughs> who are going to be taking over. These are the people who are now coming in to vote in Russia. And I have to, again, there's so many caveats, as you know so well, Kevin. You know, you go to a small town in Siberia, it's going to be very, very different. But, but I still do believe that these factors are there. These kids live in a much broader world, and they are they are hearing these things from young people around the world. I'll give you another example. There is a uh, vlogger whose name is uh, Yuri Dut. 
And uh, he is incredible. I mean, I've watched his stuff. And a lot of it is like he'll say, hey, I want to go and I want to explore this. And I'm just going to go and do it, you know. And he's very accessible. He is, is extremely effective. He, there are millions of people who follow him. And these are the people who are going to be around in 10 years, whereas the older people who were so beaten down by, you know, lack of privilege and lack of things, um, they'll be gone. And these younger people who do want a good life, but not just a material good life, something that's a little bit more, um, which I find actually quite inspiring, is coming up. I walk around this, when I'm in Moscow, I walk everywhere, okay? You know, five years ago, or even maybe two years ago, uh, I would get to a crosswalk and I would be petrified that, you know, nobody's going to stop. I actually have stared down people and not even had to stare down people, but people actually now, drivers, are beginning to stop at those crosswalks. And it may seem like an idiotic thing, but I think it's important. There is some sort of you know, respect for other people, which is beginning to grow. And that's a sign of a maturing society that has respect for its citizens. In all the years that you've watched and studied Russia, is there like one moment in your experience that stands out against all the rest as particularly defining or, I don't know, inspiring or horrifying? Is there anything that you feel was like a real formative moment in your, in your grasp of, of, uh, of Russia, aside from, you know, the better driving etiquette? Yeah, I think uh, probably Beslan was probably the most um, horrifying and gave me an insight into how the government deals with people. The fact that, well, you know, the fact that, as we remember, it was a schoolhouse, first day of school, terrorists take over. People are, um, basically mothers and children are uh, pushed into the auditorium where they have to sit for several days. And eventually the Russian security forces come and attack, uh, apparently trying to free people, but in the process set fire to the roof and the roof collapses and people die. And it was, it was a horrible experience. And I remember walking through that building that you could still, I mean, you could just smell everything. Um, and, and thinking that the ham handed, um, cruelty of just kind of going in there without a really organized plan and just being so focused on getting rid of those terrorists that innocent little kids died in the process was almost almost too uh, hard to understand. One night, I remember, you know, we had shot a story and edited and we went back uh, very late at night and we went by the building and I, re I heard this noise, and I thought it was an animal. It was like this um, horrible cry 
like from the gut. I, I actually did think it was an animal. And I looked in the building and it was what I think was a father who was walking in this classroom or what used to be a classroom. And he was screaming at the top of his lungs just by himself that I'm sure he had lost children, maybe his wife. And just the, this sounds ridiculous, but maybe, you know, the lack of respect for life and for people was horrific, horrific. And I think that a lot of Russians were affected by that, that ultimately, you know, Russians have suffered. Look at Nordost when they took over the theater, a very same type of thing where the government just comes in, does what it thinks it's going to do, does it in a ham-handed fashion, and kills its own citizens in the process. Do you think that that kind of response would occur today, or has the has the have the authorities changed, or have the has the public changed, and either the the public response would be really different, or the the, the authorities would know in advance to avoid something like that? Or do you think the situation is still primed for something like that? Should it, should it, you know, God forbid, should it, should it happen again? Well, I mean, I think, you know, knowing the, the halatness that exists, that the same type of thing could happen again. There's no question. But I do think that the reaction of people, you're seeing more people saying, this is simply unacceptable. This is not right. That that is growing. And that's also a sign of this, you know, wanting to be respected mentality. And it's not just young people. You know, there are older people who are participating in some of these things. Um, it's, it is so, to me, it is so radically different from behavior in the Soviet Union. That's why it's significant. It's not to say that it's all Jeffersonian democracy at all. But it is radically different from what happened in the Soviet Union. Now, you've been studying and working in and on Russia since the 1990s. Is that right? Oh, no. no you can go back a little bit further. Um, to the 80s then? Oh, no, no. Keep going. Keep going. Magic <laughs> okay. time clock. Go back. Go okay. back. Go back. For, for, for a while. Spinning. We'll <laughs> Actually, I studied Russian in high school, which was, I, I'm ter- I have to tell you, in the 1960s. Yeah. And then I went to Russia for the first time as an exchange student in 1969. No kidding. So, yeah. So wow. that's my, my okay. history. Okay. So You've, you've been studying Russia for, for a long time then. Right. <laughs> um, how has, the, in, in terms of the world of journalism and maybe a sort of area expertise, what are some of the biggest changes you've, you've, you've witnessed in that time? I mean, obviously a lot has changed since the fall of the Soviet Union. You know, the, it's, it's, Russia has become much less of an issue, at least for Americans, although, you know, recently things have been a little different. But aside from sort of that, because I, I think there has been a lot written about that, it, Otherwise, how would you describe some of like the biggest changes in journalism that, that you that you have witnessed personally? Well, you know, the first job I had um, ever <laughs> after graduating from college was um, at the Voice of America, USSR division, broadcasting in Russian to the former Soviet Union. And uh, you probably don't remember this, Kevin, because you are a callow fellow. But in those days... They, the Russians, the Soviet Union jammed VOA broadcasts. So we were broadcasting in shortwave radio to Russia and they were jammed. And just, you know, all of a sudden a person would be listening on a radio and big static would come in and they couldn't listen. 
I mean, it seems so primitive, but that's exactly what it was like. And what, so what I was doing was a combination of news and cultural programming, a lot of music, uh, book reviews and things like that. So just the mere ability to communicate with Russians from the outside world was so truncated, almost impossible. Uh, certainly people couldn't get Western newspapers. You know, there was very little information that got into the Soviet Union. Um, so that's number one. And that continued for a very, very long time. Um, certainly you had more penetration, you know, toward the end of the Soviet Union. But I, then I'd, I'd have to say, you know, when Yeltsin came in, Soviet Union falls apart. Yeltsin is now the president. We have independent Russia, modern Russia. Um, I remember that period very well uh, with uh, all sorts of television networks, um, some of which, of course, were controlled by oligarchs, but it was pretty freewheeling. There was a lot of information and a lot of criticism and interesting shows. And, you know, you could talk about things that you could never talk about before. And that's so we're talking about now the internal domestic Russian situation as far as information is concerned. Russians could talk to themselves and talk to other Russians about issues, sex, cancer, uh, you know, young kids and what are they up to? All of that was fair game. Uh, I'd say the next chapter, and this is all the period that I covered, then Putin comes in and the first thing he does is to centralize control of the media, which of course is the key to everything. And that period you know, I, I was actually at NTV when they took over NTV. I remember spending the evening there as they came in and, uh, you know, an independent channel, actually one of the most progressive and interesting channels, was suddenly under the control of people who were Kremlin supporters. And then eventually it became what it is today, which is just really supportive of President Putin, period. So... Putin, I think, was an enormous turning point. And then I'd have to say the Internet has really radicalized, has, has radically changed everything because then people were exposed and now are exposed to anything that they want to be exposed to. There's a language factor, but basically you can do whatever you want on the Internet. How long that will last, we don't know because the government wants to control the Internet the sovereign, the sovereign internet. But I'd say those are the biggest points in my life. What about in terms of, of Western media coverage? Is the job essentially the same for a Western correspondent working in Moscow today as it was 20, 30 years ago? Or has that job changed a lot? Oh my God. I think it's also unfortunately changed because when the Soviet, well, before the Soviet Union ended, there was great interest, of course, and Moscow was a prestigious location. There were big bureaus, et cetera. Then after the end of the Soviet Union, I remember going through this period where everyone said, well, uh, it's over, you know, kind of like ding dong, the witch is dead. Let the joyous news be spread. The wicked old witch at last is dead. Russia is going to become just like Luxembourg, and we can kind of, you know, 
pull back our staff. CNN luckily did not do that. We downsized a bit, but we were huge. We downsized, but we maintained a major uh, focus on Russia. But a lot of networks kind of wrapped up and they would have a local, let's say, fixer, producer, and then they would parachute people in from London or usually London to cover breaking news. How many people did CNN have like at its peak? Well, when we when I came in in 97, that really was the peak. And there were uh, 25, which is very large for TV. We had 25 people. 25 like like actual full staff or that includes some local full staff. But they were they were uh, local hires. And that did include like office manager. And we had drivers who also were like technical people. So, you know, with TV, you need kind of a different type of staffing, obviously, more on the technical side. And then shooters, producers, correspondents, etc. Then I unfortunately had to cut that, which I did. Um, but it but it should have been done. And then now I think it's somewhat smaller than half that. I don't know the final numbers. What happened was that a lot of networks no longer had a foreign correspondent from the mother country who knew Russian and who would be there to cover full time. So the knowledge, the deep knowledge of like, what has Putin been doing every day politically, the drip and drab of everyday news, which is crucial to to follow, that all but went by the wayside for many networks. A lot of the people that listen to this podcast, as far as I understand, I don't have rigorous metrics for this, but based on anecdotal feedback, <laughs> a lot of the people are actually like undergraduate students and maybe even graduate students who haven't entered this field professionally yet, but they're thinking about it, whether, you know, some of them maybe will stick with academia, and but others are certainly thinking about either going into journalism or going into some form of like paid analysis work or I don't know what, but they're out there. What is your advice for these these people, these the, the fellow callow, you know, Russia watchers out there? Um, uh, what, 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 what should folks like, like that, like of my generation and younger, what advice do you have for them? trying to kind of make it in this in this industry? Wow, that's a complicated thing because the jobs, or at least the media jobs, um, are diminished compared to, you know, a few years ago. But that said, <laughs> maybe for bad reasons, uh, interest domestically in the United States in Russia is increasing, probably because of the 2016 election and all of the, you know, Russian interference story, et cetera. So there is, I think there really is a need, especially if people are interested in this, to get educated in Russia as much as you can. Russia is not going to go away. Um, it is going to be there. And I think that regardless of whether Putin's in power or somebody else is in power, it is going to try to exert its influence in, in the world, it believes it should be, you know, respected and part of the world. So it, it's not going anywhere. And so if you, you know, you'd have to decide where do you enter this picture? Do you want to work in Russia, covering Russia? Or do you want to, like, use an expertise here in the United States or London or someplace to report on Russia? Or do you want to um, just write about it, you know, as a, as a print journalist, whatever? 
But I, I do think kind of remembering that it truly is an important country, even though we constantly hear demographically, you know, it will be gone in 10 years, things like that. It, it won't. I, I think it'll be around. But that, that you just learn as much as you can and try to go there and understand it and understand that the Russia that we're looking at right now is changing. And this latest constitutional change by Putin is not clear because he doesn't want it to be clear because he's not quite sure where all of this is going either. So he has, in his Putin way, thrown the cards into the air and is keeping everybody off balance. And so watching this carefully and trying to understand that it's a different ball game, uh, I think is super important and very valuable and important for the United States and the West to really understand. That's my interview with Jill Doherty, a longtime CNN journalist and the new host of the Wilson Center's Kenan X podcast. There have already been three episodes of Kenan X released so far. They're about Russia's brain drain, about arms control with Russia, and the first episode was about Chernobyl. And actually, it features an interview with Craig Mazin, the guy who created HBO's hit miniseries. Check out the description of this episode of The Russia Guy for hyperlinks to Jill's Twitter profile and to the Kenan X podcast. If you enjoyed this interview, and if you like listening to this podcast, please consider visiting patreon.com slash Kevin Rothrock, where you can make a contribution. I have what I'm calling an audiophile supporter tier, which gets you two custom little red coasters with the, the logo for this podcast. It's artwork by Yulia Drobova, if you contribute $10 a month. And I have a little bit of a backlog here. Uh, I'm waiting for there to be less virus on everything before I send them out. But I, I will be sending... These, uh, these coasters out. Even if you just contribute 10 bucks for a single month, you'll be getting one as soon as I get off my ass and get to the post office and hopefully don't spread disease everywhere and so on. But thank you to everybody already pitching in, to everybody who has pitched in in the past, and to all the wonderful people that will pitch in in the future. Also, I'm always happy to get feedback on Twitter or over email, however you want to do it, if ever you have a comment or a question about this show. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time. Говорят мы пеки буки, как выносит нас земля. Дайте что ли карты в руки, погадать на короля. Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля.